Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to This Is Not A Drill, the 16th in our series of urban transport next conversations with a live online audience um, on the topics that will help shape the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or listening later on the podcast or on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Becky Fuller. I'm Assistant Director at Urban Transport Group, and we're the hosts of this ongoing series of conversations. If you don't know us, um, we're the UK's network of city region transport authorities serving over 20 million people. Our job is to make sure transport can play its full part in making our city regions greener, fairer, happier, healthier and more prosperous places. I'm really pleased um, that so many people have signed up to take part in this event today, given that it's a topic that couldn't really be any more urgent. And we've got a great lineup for you. Um, our chair this afternoon is Glenn Lyons, the Mott MacDonald Professor of Future Mobility at the University of West of England. Glenn specialises in addressing transport sector developments in the context of uncertainty, um, including leading a three-year European project on planning for an uncertain world, as well as a series of technology roadmaps for the DFT aimed at reducing carbon emissions from UK transport. Glenn's joined by Caroline Watson, Programme Director of Transport at C40 Cities um, Climate Leadership Group. Caroline is responsible for driving and delivering C40's global transport strategy, um, including its uh, leading on its green and healthy streets declaration, which has seen 36 cities commit to procure only zero emission buses and to introduce zero emission areas. We're also joined by Urban Transport Group's director, Jonathan Bray. Uh, Jonathan's been our director since 2008, but has de dedicated his entire career to de de developing and advocating for progressive policies on transport. His achievements include being one of the leaders of the network, which ended the dominance of the road lobby on national transport policy back in the 90s, through to winning better bus powers for transport authorities, which are now being used to bring buses back under local control. And you and your audience can also be part of this conversation. You can submit questions uh, via the, the Zoom Q&A box. Uh, please keep them short, snap, sharp and snappy. Um, you can also upvote your favourite questions and that will make it more likely that those questions will be addressed by the panel. Uh, so Glenn's going to be picking those up in the last 15 to 20 minutes of this conversation. Um, you can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call, but please don't put your questions in there because we might miss them. And you can also tweet us at UTG underscore UK. Join the conversation using the hashtag UTG next. Um, I'll now hand over to our chair, Ben Lyons. Over to you, Glenn. Great. Thank you very much, Becky. And thanks, everyone, for joining us this lunchtime. Uh, hope you've got something nice to eat while you're listening in. Uh, and I'm really delighted to be here in conversation with Caroline and Jonathan this afternoon, uh, addressing what really it couldn't be a more enormous and challenging topic, it seems to me, at least for the transport sector right now. Um, and I think our job in our conversation, if we can manage it, um, is not to give you a big helping of blah, 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 um, but also in terms of this being in any sense a counselling session, uh, not to leave you all feeling even more despondent and anxious than perhaps some of you feeling already about this topic. So yes, we'll try and be realistic uh, and challenging with each other in the conversation, but also looking to see if there are some positives. Um, for myself, at least, I'm sort of thinking in career terms, I never intended to end up here, 
Um, I take my mind back uh, to when I was a student civil engineer, uh, and I remember how wonderful it was uh, learning the formula for the maximising the throughput of traffic through a signalised junction, a formula that would set the green times on each phase, uh, and thought, this is great, I, I love this, I think I'm going to go into transport. Um, and in, in the years that have followed, I've moved away from that simple problem uh, of traffic management at a junction, which I'm, I'm sure for the, the traffic managers out there, it's not that simple, um, through into more and more complex problems that involve humans as well as technology. Um, and we really appear now to be inhabiting the space of wicked problems, which one could see as a great privilege, but it's also clearly a great challenge. I, I'm not deluding myself that in the next hour we will find the magic solution to all our worries when it comes to um, the situation we're in, which, as the topic title has said, is not a drill. Uh, but enough from me. I'm keen straight away to learn some more from Caroline and Jonathan uh, about themselves, about each, each other's backgrounds, um, and perhaps then we'll look at how they've journeyed towards how they got to the present. So, um, Caroline, if I can start with you, um, I suppose for me particularly uh, is wanting to look under the bonnet of C40 um, and learn some more about what that really means and has meant for you uh, in terms of being part of that organisation and what it's trying to achieve. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. Um, yeah, I've been at C40 since 2017. I started off working on um, their electric vehicle network I now lead their transport team and their transport strategy. And it's a global network of mayors. It's about 96 cities around the world who belong to C40. And you it's a selective club in the sense that mayors have to, and cities have to meet certain participatory standards and leadership standards to take to be part of the organization. So they have to be seriously committed to climate action. That's the that's what C40 is about. So we call ourselves C40s, but we're actually the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group. And as I said, it's 96 um, members currently. The chair is um, London's Mayor Khan and our president is Michael Bloomberg. So he was one of the founding um, members when he was the mayor of New York. And um, uh, Ken Livingstone as well was one of the founding members. So we've been going for, for a while since those, those mayors were in office. Um, but we've, we've grown. We were originally 40 cities. We're now 96. Um, but we've got huge wealth of ambition amongst those cities. And I think that's the really important thing. Each city has developed a climate action plan and that climate action plan is aligned with 1.5 degrees warming. So um, to, you know, to try to reduce our emissions in line with that target. So um, it's a very serious organisation and we, uh, although it can be fun too, but in terms of very serious in terms of the climate action that our cities are taking. And my job is to help those cities reduce their car uh, carbon emissions from transport. Okay, and we'll we'll come back um, to C40, I'm sure, because I'm keen to, to ask a little bit later, you know, in a sense, what difference you feel it's been making. But just in terms of learning a bit more about, about Caroline Watson, um, I was at an event earlier this week where civil servant, um, you know, explained that they were a French graduate, which I thought was fantastic. Um, it didn't have it as a label on, on their forehead, of course. Um, are there one or two things about yourself that will be helpful for our audience to get some orientation, the, the type of person you are, what's motivating you, particularly in this area? Sure. I'm not a French graduate and I embarrassingly am quite British in the sense that I can't speak another language, but um, that's my confessional. Um, 
I thought it was interesting, Glenn, what you said at the beginning about how you didn't see yourself ending up here. I kind of did see myself ending up here. I mean, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. But when I was at university, I read a book called The Carbon War by Jeremy Leggett. And it was such an eye opener for me. It was all about the Kyoto Protocol and the negotiations, but the role of the fossil fuel lobby. So it really laid out the stark reality of climate change, but also the incredibly difficult political challenge we had in terms of trying to solve the problem in light of all the vested interests. So. I chose to do, following reading that book during my undergraduate, I became um, a master's student looking at um, environmental politics because I thought politics would be where the solutions were. I then got a job working for a Labour MP who was on the Environment Committee in Parliament. Then I moved on to the Environment Agency working on transport policy. And and I guess that's how I ended up in the transport world. And then I, um, one of the longer term jobs I had was working at the Energy Saving Trust on their electric vehicle programmes, hence the reason I then started at C40 working on electrification as well. So deep, deeply in your DNA, um, <laughs> the topic for today, um, but you've, it, you've stayed, I'm sensing, um, sort of within, if, if I were to say direct action, your direct action is, is C40 and what we can achieve together as professionals. Have, have you had moments, you know, in your journey where you thought, uh, personally, I have to do something more uh, or have you had that fulfilment in, in your career through these different roles in addressing this topic? Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer that we need to be taking action from every side. So I have huge amounts of respect for um, you know, Greenpeace and all the direct action they take. I am not brave enough to do that. I like my creature comforts too much. I'm not going to go out to sea and uh, do those sorts of things, but I'm really grateful that they do. Um, I've always felt that you know you can't get change without political change. So that's why I love working with our mayors because the mayors are serious about um, the change and we're trying to help them to be even more ambitious than they they already are being. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I've always I've felt the sense of the emergency growing. You know, I've been involved in this since my, you know, it was 2001, I read that book by Jeremy Leggett, you know, it's been over 20 years now. So I can, you know, there is a sense of frustration amongst myself and colleagues who've been in this um, sector for the last two decades that we've wasted so much time. Um, but I'm still hopeful. And I know that there's a lot of great stuff that's happening that we can discuss today that we just need to accelerate. Yeah. Okay, well, let's use your, your reference to uh, an influential book putting Jonathan on the spot as an intro for you, Jonathan. No problems if you're, you know, not minded to be reading books in that way. But is there a book or was there a person or a, an event that you can look back on in your your kind of journey as something that was influential that you said, yes, that's speaking to me. Um, this is why I now find myself as the director at the Urban Transport Group. Yeah, I mean, I suppose going back, uh, there is events and people. Um, I'm a bit of a child of the 80s when things were quite polarised uh, politically. And um, I was always interested in transport. Um, and when I came to London, it's kind of hard to imagine now, but at that stage, there were plans to close down a number of central London tube stations. Uh, there was the King's Cross fire. Uh, bus services were being cut back and there were plans for major roads in inner London, um, the, uh, including on arterial routes into the centre and the inner uh, ring road. I mean, I suppose it's a good sign in the way, but some of this is really quite hard to imagine now, but that was the case. Um, and um, so I wanted to, to change the world um, and interested in transport. So I got involved in a... Uh, local transport campaign, Lambert Public Transport Group, with someone who did 
kind of set me on this path in many ways. John Stewart, some of our uh, listeners may be familiar with John being involved in many campaigns over the year, a brilliant campaign and very good at encouraging people to to get involved. And as uh, as one thing about life is um, th- one thing leads to another, doesn't it? And um, from there, I got involved in the uh, a transport campaign that was um, uh, campaigning for better public transport across London, opposing some of the things that were going on around the cutbacks, uh, and also in the anti-roads campaign in London, uh, which was successful. The roads I've described were didn't happen. There was still some road building in London, but um, the vast majority of it was not back. From there, me and a, a few of us went on to found a national anti-roads campaign called Alarm UK, uh, which again was successful in uh, reducing the size of the road programme substantially and also not getting rid of roads and still there, of course, might come on to that, but kind of reorientating policy towards, okay, well, if we can't, if, if it's not just about roads, then we have to do something on public transport. And that's kind of stuck since then. Um, various policy work with uh, Transport 2000 that was around the Save Our Railways anti-privatisation campaign, uh, which didn't succeed uh, until about now, where it's kind of succeeded in that it's fallen apart. So it was a delayed gratification, uh, but it was a high-profile campaign. And then finally, uh, Urban Transport Group, um, which was a good fit for me because it's enabled me to use my lobbying skills. But instead of just being completely on the outside an NGO, it's with organisations that can and do deliver things on the ground, um, which I very much enjoy. And um, one of the topics we're talking about today is about, okay, there's the case, the arguments, we know that, but um, it's actually in most respects now a practical task. Um, we need the, you know, direct action helps dramatise things, but it's the people on Monday morning who go in there and are doing the work to actually decarbonise things in practice that, uh, is gets us where we need to be, um, and it's that that complicated practical task that particularly interests me at the moment, and the role that city regions can play. And I think what you've done very well there is it, well remind us not all of us will have experienced some of those challenges and battles in the sense that you were involved in uh, over years past. Um, but it does remind us that the world doesn't stand still, um, and to some extent, we can rest assured that the world could have been a worse place than it already feels uh, for some of us um, had not the people like yourselves, uh, you and Caroline, been engaged in the way you have been trying to, I suppose many of us in our profession are motivated by stewardship over a better future. Um, Although I'm also reminded of um, a report Phil Goodwin wrote some years ago, which he called Running to Stand Still, which was you know, this notion that it, it could have been an awful lot worse, but it's clear it's not very good still nevertheless um so i wonder if um i'll perhaps come to go with you first jonathan and then come back to caroline in terms of where you've been and where we've got to and, and maybe i can do that through the lens of these these two great organizations the urban transport group uh, and c40 um what would have happened could you imagine a counterfactual over the last years that you've been involved in utg if it didn't exist what what have you seen change of significance, particularly in relation to uh, dealing with a more sustainable transport system um, that perhaps you would credit UTG with in part? I think um, I think our role has been to help areas learn from each other um, as, a, as a network of people who are doing similar jobs. I think we've done that 
I hope we've managed to um, advance some of these policy agendas. Uh, one of the things we've tried to do is to look a little bit ahead, perhaps, of where our members are, but they'll be there before too long. Um, we've done reports recently on things like how you decarbonise transport in the suburbs, which perhaps is not a topic that has been at the forefront, a lot of concentration on cities. So um, we've played that role. We've done our best to lobby for the, the funding and the powers that our members need to improve public transport. So all that makes a contribution. But um, I think um, a lot of the kind of bigger advances have probably been made in, in specific areas, um, when you think of some of the things that have been happening in London around the active travel agenda, around road user charging or Birmingham, they've also introduced uh, charging um, in their air quality zone that includes cars. Or when you look at some of the stuff uh, that's happening in Wales, which perhaps we could talk about later. But hopefully we've been able to uh, provide some kind of policy support, some networking support to help advance that. But really, it's about what happens on the ground, what what people do uh, when they get into work on Monday morning and the political leadership um, that's got the, the courage and bravery and willingness to take on some of these big, big challenges in specific localities. OK, Caroline, what about you? Um, What's C40 achieved, might you say, or do you feel wouldn't have happened without it or might have happened if it hadn't stood in the way? Well, I think some of the things that um, Jonathan has said, you know, really resonate with me in terms of being a network where um, ideas are shared and best practices shared. But I think one of the things about politicians is they can be quite competitive, as you you may know. so, you know, I think it's fantastic when we bring mayors together and they're all shouting about their achievements. And I think what, you know, C40 is very mindful of is that it's not a, it's not just about giving everybody a pat on the back and giving them a platform to shout about what they're doing. I mean, that is intrinsically a little bit of it because everybody loves that. But the most important thing is that those conversations then lead to acceleration of action. And um, one of the things that really warmed my heart recently was when we got an email from somebody, I won't name the city, somewhere in the Netherlands saying that they had the largest electric bus fleet in Europe. And we were like, well, no, you haven't. (laughs) You haven't, because we know who has. And it was actually at that point in time, it was London. And um, you know, to be able to give that information to them to say, okay, well, we need to ramp up because we want to have the biggest electric bus fleet in Europe is um, you know, one of those things that's really rewarding. And another couple of examples, I think, where C40 has an impact, just I mean, these are just small examples, but just to bring it to life, is that we have this, well, the, the bigger example is we have this Green Healthy Streets Declaration where we've brought 36 cities together um, where they've signed to commit to introducing zero emission areas in 2030 and ensuring a major area of, uh, sorry, zero emission areas in 2030 and electric zero emission buses from 2025. And off the back of that, Rio um, City Council actually passed a law making it the law that they would bring in this zero emission area. So without the declaration, that wouldn't have happened. So although the declaration is, you know, it's a piece of paper that cities sign. We're not, it's not legally binding, but it can lead to things happening in the city that are legally blind, binding, but then mean that it will be introduced. Another example is LA. Um, we had what we called a Clean Bus Finance Academy, where we brought lots of city delegates to London to see, um, to learn from each other, listen to investors around bus finance. But they went to see the Waterloo Bus Depot. 
I, I think I'm in um, a family of friends here where we can get excited about bus depots <laughs> because I have to say the guy who runs Waterloo Bus Depot is an evangelist for electric buses. And what he's done is incredible, but it's quite a small bus depot and it is full of electric buses. So all these city delegates from around the world are going, wow, I mean, this is incredible. Like if you can fit electric buses in here and you can fit in the charge points and, you, you know, you can convince the drivers to use them and they're learning about all these things. So the woman from LA said, I spent three days in a workshop and it all made sense. It was very theoretical, but it made sense on paper, but I wasn't really feeling it. Now I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I've got to go back to LA and tell the mayor we can do this. And following that, the mayor came out and made a commitment that all of the offices be zero emission. So every bus now being procured within the powers of the mayor of LA is now zero emission. And so I think we can take, I mean, mayor of LA will take personal credit for that, I'm sure. But I feel that C40 can really take some credit for that too. So that, I, I think what I've heard from both of you is, is of course, that we can, there are stories of positive change. Uh, one recognises the processes involved. These, you, you don't get instant fixes, but you you start sort of chain reactions, particularly where you've got these networks uh, of urban authorities learning from each other and willing to progress. Um, you did mention declarations, and so probably won't have escaped our audience's notice that we are in the midst of COP27, um, although perhaps there's more... Um, airtime coverage of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here and scorpions biting politicians. Who knows? Um, we're told that uh, there are 25% more delegates this year linked to fossil fuel industry uh, than there were last year. And one quote I saw was that COP27 looks like a fossil fuel industry trade show. Um, so pledges and commitments and intentions, uh, we, we hear a lot of, and of course, we're aware of the policy action gap often uh, when it comes to transport developments. Um, we've made progress in the past, and one can see some really exciting developments in cities. Um, but my concern is whether we've got the velocity we need, the, the speed and direction to address the seriousness of the problem we're facing. Um, so I wonder if, if each of you have got an example of the, of the here and now, which you feel might get closest to something that could really give confidence to other cities, to other professionals, that serious change is possible or that, that you know, we're at the beginning of an upswing that could really become sort of transformational change that we're going to need globally. I know that's a big question to ask you both, and, and it may be hard to root around to find those, but anything that comes to mind that it has inspired you? Who wants to go first? Uh, you go first. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of thoughts. So I think um, I really like the example that comes from Jakarta, actually, in Indonesia. Um, it may not be the first city that everybody thinks of when they think of progressive transport, but um, they are doing some really... Um, fantastic thing. So they've expanded their public transport network and they've integrated with informal transport. And over the last five years, they've doubled public transport coverage. And so the city has gone from the fourth most congested city in the world to the in 2017 to the 46th most congested city in the world. So 46th isn't bad considering um, they were at number four in 20. Um, so that's not 46th in 2021. And the way they've done this partly is as I said, expanding the public transport network, but also introducing something called the Jack Lingo card. So, I mean, I lived in London for a long time, so it's a bit like the Oyster card, um, which other cities have similar things. But it's reduced the cost of travel from around 30% of income to 10% because it 
CAPS Integrated Transport Fares Across Rail and Bus Networks. So I think that is an astounding example of if you really invest in public transport in a sensible way, you can have massive impact. And there's a report from the IPCC that says using public transport and providing accessible and affordable public transport is one of the key things we can do to reduce carbon emissions. And there's some research that C40 have done with McKinsey a few years ago as well that backs this up. So um, I think, you know, it's just a really lovely example. I've got other examples too, but I wanted to share that one first. That's a great example. Let's come to Jonathan, but I'd also like to hear from you both very briefly whether there was a, a key ingredient that unlocked the potential that that example you know you just demonstrated very well caroline but jonathan do you can can you match caroline's and go one better i thought i'd let caroline go first because she's got the whole world to uh... <laughs> surely the uk's world leading i've been told that so many times i don't think there's any one place where you'd go yes they have absolutely sorted every dimension of this, uh, just copy them. Um, but you've got a lot of places where there are elements that um, are uh, 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 could be uh, copied and they're showing some leadership. If you look at uh, Greater Manchester and uh, Merseyside in, um, uh, on things like uh, taking control back over their local bus services so they can provide the kind of integrated public transport network that people in London take for granted. Um, I think if you look at Wales, which I know is not a city, uh, but I think they're doing some really interesting stuff and they perhaps don't get the attention and credit they deserve. So uh, they've got a moratorium on new road building and doing a, a review of that. So I think one of the easy places to start with climate action is stop doing things that actually make things worse. Um, and building more sprawl distributor roads at vast cost as well. It's not just whether a good idea, it's the vast cost of these things is taking money from things that would be uh, actually helpful. Um, uh, they've got a new appraisal system, which is moving away from the dominance of journey time savings as the driver for projects. Uh, they've got uh, 20 mile an hour residential zones, and they're looking at uh, a national uh, programme for new zero emission buses so there's a lot there that i think they deserve credit for nottingham is probably the place you'd look to in england as the one that ticks maybe not all the boxes but it ticks a heck of a lot um and it's got uh, some of the highest public transport use in the country it's been one of the leaders around zero emission vehicle fleets not just buses but also cars taxis uh, bin lorries the full range um, and they're also making connections with energy and with the built environment, which I think is very important. I don't think we can approach this just in a transport silo, an energy silo, built environment silo. We need to make those connections. So um, it's got its own uh, power station, its own uh, heating grid. Um, its trams are powered by renewable energy. So it's making those connections. So uh, it's also aiming to be the first climate neutral city in 2028. So I think there's a lot of places, and perhaps that's where the value of our respective networks come in, is sharing this stuff and trying to get people enthused and excited. And also, as Caroline says, yeah, seeing things is so important. Seeing is believing much better than sitting. Well, I better not say that because we're all sitting in an event now, aren't we? But um, seeing is is believing. And I think um, I just wanted to bring in something else as well, which I think, to me, it's... Um, it's a bit prosaic, but I actually think it's the most one of the most useful things we can do, which is the idea of carbon budgets. And C40 have been doing some great work on this because you mentioned targets. 
earlier, Glenn, and I think they are important, but sometimes they don't actually join up to anything. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a target, but what does that actually mean? So the idea of carbon budgeting is each each department of local government has its annual budget um, for, for for carbon, including absolutely crucially the, the chief finance officer. Um, so it's not just the, the climate person down the corridor or the transport planning person. Everyone in the organization is linked to specific budget targets in their part of the organization and where you've got two issues linked together like housing or uh, and transport where, where where's a cost-cutting issue you can set up cost-cutting um, committees and we're seeing that in nordic countries we're seeing that in los angeles it'd be great if we could see it in the uk because it's a practical measure that goes beyond the rhetoric and the and the, the big targets which are important but what it needs to join up to something and that's what carbon budgeting does so I'll just pick up on that target point if I can. And I, um, th- this is in no way being disparaging of either of you, but I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great in all these events if we had a sort of Greta blah, blah, blahometer in the corner where we could really get a sense of whether what we're hearing means we're getting anywhere close to the territory we need to be in for not just incremental improvement, which perhaps we've all been working hard to achieve in our careers, but something that feels like, we're getting that upswing that that will change lives and transform cities, but the wider landscape. And of course, perhaps the, the most frightening target of, of all for me at the moment uh, is that we need a 45% reduction in global emissions, not just in transport, by 2030 against 2010 levels. Um, and at this point, emissions are still growing. So we've got seven years to achieve the impossible after which we move beyond one and a half degrees. Um, and most of us are perhaps sitting feeling rather warm this November um, rather than having our heating on because of the energy crisis. So that that sort of sets the big picture for the scale of the challenge we've got here. Um, now, you mentioned, Jonathan, in reference to what Wales is doing, and of course, that takes us beyond just the urban environment. So, so coming to my next question, which I'll perhaps pass to you, Caroline, first of all, um, how much can cities do in terms of the forms of mobility and the lengths of journeys uh, that are involved compared to that bigger picture of decarbonising a whole sector um, whereas we know about 27% of emissions in the UK are still attributed to, to transport? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, a lot. I guess the, the answer is a lot, but not everything. So, you know, the scenario, to get to 1.5 degrees or to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, we need everybody acting together. And I think um, just to go back and reiterate what Jonathan was saying about carbon budgeting, I mean, I think that seems like a a huge solution, not just for transport, for for all of carbon emissions. Um, And that is something that we're actively working on with Oslo and other cities, including Schwane in South Africa, Rio, London, just to name a few. Um, And I think, you know, everything you've said, Glenn, is right. You know, it's... I'm just trying to reflect on quite a lot of the things you've just said, but um, we don't have much time. And I think it's really frustrating from a personal perspective, but I know a lot of us will agree that, you know, we've literally been talking about this for decades and we've not been accelerating enough. And I think Jonathan hit the nail on the head where he was saying, we're still spending money on stuff that's making the problem worse. So, you know, the UK government, I think it was under Theresa May a a few years ago, came up with, oh, is a climate emergency? Yes, there's a climate emergency. We're not acting like we're in an emergency. Um, 
and you know, I think the carbon budgeting would be a really huge solution in terms of saying, okay, we talk about finance and everything is wedded to how much everything costs, but we don't think about the carbon cost. And if we're really in it, well, we really are in a, cl- a climate emergency, that's undisputable, but whether we're acting like we're of one is quite clearly that we're not. You know, you only have to look at the newspaper every day and the news every day to think, well, if the climate crisis is as bad as everybody thinks it is, why are we not talking about it all the time? So I think the carbon budget is a way to, to really address that. Um, and you can have to remind me what the question was because I tried well, to address really the you made. To get a sense of, um, you know, we look at urban areas, of course, because they reflect a huge proportion of the population. Um, but in terms of people going about their lives within urban areas, which clearly tend to be better served by alternatives to the private car than, than the wider population. But those are perhaps shorter journeys. We're not talking about the, the longer distance journeys, the intercity journeys, um, rural transport. Is that is that where the real battles are going to be won or lost? Or do urban areas have an absolute front and centre role uh, in decarbonising on behalf of us all? Yeah, of course. Thank you. So I think the statistic is something like 70% of people in 2050 will live in cities and it's around 50% now globally, globally. I don't know what the numbers are for the UK specifically. So this has to be fought and won in cities. That's not to say we need to ignore national policy. We need to ignore um, urban and suburban areas as well. But you know, the vast majority of people and therefore the associated emissions are in cities. And also cities have powers that they can, you know, introduce and use when national governments aren't acting. So I think from C40's perspective, that's why we think cities are a priority because there's so much impact that we can have. But at the end of the day, we can't do this without national government either. So it shouldn't be an and or, it needs to be a both, but it shouldn't be an excuse either for urban areas not to act because the national government isn't, because they can do a lot of things themselves. Um, I think there's a there's a point here around density, and I guess it's a planning issue. So, you know, my understanding of <laughs> planning is that, you know, there are decisions that are made at the local level, but there's also policy that is dictated at the national level. So we have to look at where the right decisions and wrong decisions are being made currently. But there's a really nice report from the Centre for Cities that um, some people may have seen that basically makes the point that density is um, fundamental in terms of getting the uptake we need on public transport. And it gives an example of between Leeds and Marseille. And it shows that if you were to have that. So Marseille has a better transport network than Leeds. No offence to anybody in Leeds, um, but apparently it does, according to the Centre for Cities. But if you were to replicate Marseille's public transport city in Leeds, you still wouldn't get the same number of people being able to travel into the city centre within 30 minutes as you would in Leeds because of the, the lack of density. So I think it's just a really nice um, illustration to say that we really need to start, you know, along with the carbon budgets, we also not need to start planning according to carbon impacts. And we need to start thinking about carbon impacts in everything that we do. And so it's not too late. And if we get to 1.6, it will be disappointing to say the least but it's better than 2.6 which is the trajectory we're on now and what we can't do is just say this is too hard i'm not going to do anything because i think we all care too much about our children our nieces and nephews and the future generations to just um not do that so final point and then i will let jonathan speak i think another key thing that we should remind ourselves is that if we get this right the solutions to decarbonizing transport are the solutions to cleaner air making us all active, healthier, increasing footfall in our cities, 
um, increasing, therefore increasing the economy, economic benefits, reducing congestion. So there's no reason not to do this. So I think that's what we really need to focus on. And I'll stop. Uh, that, that's great, Caroline. And uh, that's given Jonathan plenty of pause for thought. And, that, and again, I think from your experience with Urban Transport Group, Jonathan, uh, you know, Caroline's been emphatic about in some ways it still feels like we're going in the wrong direction with certain actions rather than you know, making serious headway in others, although you've given some great examples of progressive activity. Um, I've heard several examples where officers are advising members that you know, the longer you wait because of political nervousness, the tougher the solutions are going to have to be, unless you're going to tear up your climate emergency declaration and your 2030 targets. What are you sensing, Jonathan, for perhaps from the political sphere? Is that message landing and get driving home for politicians? Do they have the, the sense of agency and confidence to, to be more bold and ambitious? And it's well, really not as good as we thought, uh, after all. What can you say in defence of Leeds after Caroline? <laughs> well, I think, as I was saying before, we are seeing examples of cities in the UK or city regions, or in the case of Wales, showing real leadership and going much further than national government. And I think cities uh, in general uh, are probably also more consistent in their interest in this issue, whereas you can find in national politics that you get an oscillation between uh, progressive and uh, not so progressive, and climate is caught up in some kind of wider culture war. I mean, cities do oscillate a bit, but less, I think, um, and they have uh, been where most of the action has been so far in in the UK. Um, I think more widely, your point about kind of I think that I think climate is one of those issues where it's very easy to oscillate between despair uh, when you think about the big picture and hope when you see something good happening and maybe it's just me but that's what I find I do a lot it's kind of hope despair business um, but I think what I come down to is you can only do what you can do in your specific uh, role that you have um, no one person can achieve the wider global outputs. So you just got to do the best you can in the situation you've got. Um, and uh, I think in some ways, the more time we spend wringing our hands that we're not going to get exactly what we want, um, is in some ways a bit of a wasted time uh, because although it helps create the climate for change, it's actually about, concrete measures to, to make things happen and people need a sense of agency so there is uh the the danger that if we focus on we're not going to be where we want to be which we're not where we want to be now um i think it's a question of how far away uh, in the end we are from where we want to be it's not going to be what we want um uh, 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 but if we we need to give people a sense of some kind of agency and hope because we need people to be inspired to get on and, and crack on with the, with the practical tasks. And I think I was in Malmo earlier this year and I really like their attitude to it, including the people working in local government. Um, you know, they're learning from each other. They're trying new things. Not all of it works. Um, they're also very committed to ensure that it's a fair transition. So some of the measures they're doing around climate, around decarbonizing, um, say a housing estate or whatever they're, they're starting in some of the the poor areas because they know they need to bring everybody 
with them. And I think that's another challenge around decarbonisation uh, and leadership, kind of circling back to where you started, which is that um, we, we're quite good at doing the easy stuff. Uh, so, um, you know, we, uh, decarbonisation of vehicles, not that easy, but it's been a major focus. In my view, it needs to be done. But the harder stuff, traffic restraint, all those kind of things, um, uh, obviously people are, 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 are more reluctant to to be in the, the forefront. And it is tricky because you do need to, to some extent, bring people with you because um, it's a bit like if you go at the King, you better not miss. Um, and we did that in the past with big push on road user charging, you know, the fuel protests we had in uh, 2000 set us back a long time. So you need to be kind of savvy. You need to uh, to be brave, but you also need to be slightly opportunistic. What kind of traffic restraint measures can you get in when that will stick? Because if you have these big setbacks, they really can be major setbacks. They put other politicians off from doing it. So you need to be, you need to be yeah. brave. You do need to be idealistic, but you also need to have that kind of hard-headedness to understand where um, the opportunities to move on the harder stuff are going to stick and you're going to manage to get it through. Uh, and we are beginning to see that, I think. And I, and I can hear, perhaps within both of you, but certainly what you've just been saying, Jonathan, that, and I suspect many of us people in our audience are doing this, trying to make sense of this situation we're in and how we're feeling personally about it and as professionals wanting to make a difference and yet sometimes feeling that despair um, because of the frustration that it's simply not enough. Uh, you know, I can see, for example, um, some challenge from our audience uh, with your reference to Wales. You know, um, is it more than smoke and mirrors? Uh, you know, is what we're hearing really materialising on the ground? And of course, that's that's a journey of change. I think the political will is there in Wales, but um, the percolation through into change on the ground is a separate matter. Um, something else that's been raised. Uh, in the audience uh, is in relation to goods movement. I think we naturally gravitate to moving people. Um, and yes, we've got electric vehicles starting to make their way into the fleet. Um, but from both your experiences and perhaps back to Caroline, um, indeed, the Secretary General of the United Nations reminding us about the perils of food shortages around the world. Um, so maybe there won't even be enough food to move around. But do you see freight coming into more focus in your sphere of C40 than it has in the past? And is that driven by climate change in any sense and the decarbonisation agenda? Yes, absolutely. So freight is one of the big challenges for our cities and they're constantly telling us this is what they need help on. And we're currently running two projects at the moment, um, one in Milan, where we are running a pilot um, on bicycle couriers. So trying to get the last mile replaced with um, bicycles and I think that's something you're seeing more of in um, cities is you know that um, not just the transition to electric vehicles or even hydrogen in some circumstances but um, also the transition to you know does it need to be do we need to have a vehicle like do we have to have a motorized vehicle coming into the city center or can it be replaced with bicycles so it's definitely something we're exploring I know in the Netherlands they're being super ambitious around this and they're having I think it's like 26 zero emission zones for freight vehicles so I think there's a huge amount we can learn from what's happening in the Netherlands that's great and just to say your 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 examples both of you are being well appreciated I can see in the audience and I, and I suppose that's the power um, of both the networks of the coalitions that you represent that we really do need to give 
our officers and, and members the confidence to, to know others are fighting the good fight and in some some cases breaking through. Um, has, that, has that been quite an important trait of your two networks? Jonathan, would you say that's that's perhaps one of the key contributions of UTG, that it allows that cross-fertilisation uh, and, and exemplification of what's possible? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and also being a voice for local transport, because sometimes it can be not get the attention that national uh, rail and national highways uh, to, to do. But I think, um, uh, yeah, it's also giving an opportunity for, for people doing good stuff in local government uh, to, to to get that that message out there because there's not necessarily a trait of local government to do that um, in the same way that it can be in the the private sector. Um, and maybe just going back to your the the freight point as well because that's one area that we've done some work on and uh, we have a freight network which we we bring together. Um, and uh, I do think uh, it, we should have more of a focus on freight. I think it has had more of a focus. Uh, uh, in recent years than it might have had in the past. But I think one of the challenges of freight in the UK is that it's, up until recently at least, it hasn't been causing as many problems. Things get things were getting delivered to shops. Um, it wasn't at the top of politicians' problem list. And also as an industry, it is quite competitive. Um, there's, there's competition in that market. Uh, however, unfortunately, that can mitigate against the idea of making more interventions in the sector, which I think is what we need to do because freight doesn't really pay its full costs in terms of the uh, its impact on safety, on the environment, on congestion and air quality. Um, but also the fact that it's so competitive means some more things we need to happen don't necessarily happen. So, for example, on rail freight, which has been growing to some extent, uh, but it's all about long haul bulk freight. Um, it's not so interested in supplying smaller uh, uh, smaller consignments, uh, but also in cities. I mean, I've always been uh, uh, impressed by a trial there was at Euston not so long ago where they brought in all the goods that were needed for all the local convenience stores in the central London area around Euston and, and King's Cross. All came into Euston Station because the station isn't used at night. You've got a, a distribution depot there. It worked. As a logistical exercise, it worked. But I don't think it worked commercially because of the economics of the sector. So I think with freight, we need to, um, I'm sure it won't be popular uh, in some parts of the freight sector, but I think we need to be more interventionist um, around the costs um, and around, in some cases, pump priming with public money to particularly uh, make sure it's doing the job around last mile and making its full contribution to the wider uh, decarbonisation that we need to see. Um I'm keeping half an eye on the, the the clock, and it's funny how time slips by, which I suppose is symptomatic of the challenge we face with the decarbonisation agenda. Um, I was going to ask you both about your sort of degrees of optimism and pessimism, but but I think actually it might be helpful to the audience or for parts of the audience if we come back to the the journeys we started on about your personal career journeys and my my session as a as a student civil engineer solving traffic junction uh, signal settings. Um, if you were either imagining yourselves as your younger selves starting out again in your careers today, or advising those who are coming who are who are newer to to the profession and some of your younger peers, 
what would you be saying to them in terms of what's important, um, what you would encourage them to prioritise or how they would be able to best exercise their agency? So what advice to the next generation of future leaders to help us progress again tackling this challenge? And Caroline, do you fancy a go at that what first? What a question. What a question. Um, I don't know is the answer. And, I, you know, I kind of look at the Fridays for Future movement and, you know, Greta, who is mentioned a lot because she's so phenomenal. But, you know, she has lots of peers who are doing great stuff in other countries, too. And I kind of feel like they're doing it better than I ever did. You know, what advice can I give them? I kind of feel so the answer to your question I was going to say when you asked about pessimism, I know you changed the question, but the pessimism <laughs> or optimism one, I was going to say we just need to be pragmatic. It's kind of like I think, and Jonathan alluded to this too, but I think um uh, I think it was Al Gore said something like, you know, um being pessimistic is a luxury. We don't have time for that. We just need to crack on and do it. And I think so maybe that's the advice. I would give to young generations, but I don't think they need that. I think they need us to listen to that and just say, let's just get on and do it and stop talking about it. Beautifully put, which probably suggests we should be listening to younger generations more than expecting them to listen to us. Uh, Jonathan, what do you um, I would say um, stick to your guns and your principles. You may have to tack and weave a little bit, but um, it's always a terrible temptation to uh, give in to groupthink. Um, and it's usually not a good idea. So um, uh, stick to your principles and find your own way through because you will find a way through. I think there is something around the softer skills that um, are needed in the transport sector. I think it's it's got a strong, in general, the sector, a strong engineering, almost quasi-military kind of uh, background. Uh, but we need to, to move into softer skills because part of it is around... Uh, making the case to people and involving people. Um, if you look at things like low traffic neighbourhoods in London, I don't want to get into the whole debate about that too much, but you would think that, um, that was a relatively easy win um, in terms of your list of difficult things you need to do around decarbonisation. hasn't proved that way, but um, why do we even call them low, low traffic neighbourhoods? Is, is actually about better streets. Are we really communicating to people in a way that they respond to? And so I think all that, the people side of things, um, uh, obviously the engineering thing is important, I know, but there's I think kind of cultural change I think that that's needed and that uh, uh, younger people could could bring to it. And I, I, yeah, I'm wondering, as you mentioned, LTNs, whether we collectively perhaps have been seeing seeing ourselves moving through the stages of grief model where, you know, there's been societal denial encouraged by the fossil fuel industry. Um, and, and maybe we're seeing elements now of anger because people are recognising what's at stake, um, which is making for a very difficult political arena um, for our local members in cities around the world. Um, but also is energising the, the voices, perhaps, of younger generations. Um, so perhaps before um, I move towards passing back to, to Becky to see if she can sort of draw out some threads from our conversation, um, is there something each of you would like to say by way of some sort of parting messages to the audience? Um, or uh, I, I love your pragmatism point, Caroline, but any, any further words of encouragement? Um, in that vein. So um, there was actually a report I was reading this morning from the 
um, Clean Cities campaign. I thought it was just worth sharing a couple of statistics from that because I think it helps us remind ourselves that although we're not moving as fast as we need to, things are at times moving in the right direction, especially in Europe. So across Europe, including the UK and Norway, low emission zones increased 40% from 228 to 320 between 2019 and 2022. So I think you know, we're seeing an awful lot of cities having the right frameworks in place that we just now need to ratchet up to zero emission areas or zero emission zones. And you know, I know these things aren't easy, but introducing low emission zones wasn't easy too. We're doing it. So I think it's just mindful of those. Let's be pragmatic. Let's identify the steps we need to take and take them step by step rather than thinking of these big, scary numbers of like 2050, 2030. Because I think we know what we need to do. And we just need to step by step get on and do it. Thanks, Caroline. Jonathan. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And I think the other thing that, I find helps is that it's actually a, a, a complex, uh, difficult, but very interesting challenge, decarbonisation, um, particularly on these kinds of timescales, because there's the, there's the kind of temporal issues. Some of these things you could do relatively quickly um, if you started now. Some of these things you need to won't actually happen until 10 years or even longer, potentially, but you need to prepare the way for that. Um, what do you focus on? What, what do you what do you do first? Some of these things are politically difficult. Some of them are politically easy. So it, it's a, a, a kind of four dimensional uh, uh, battle, and you can't really afford to get any of these decisions wrong because we don't have time to get it wrong. You've got to try and get it right first time. But um, everyone loves a challenge, don't they? So I think looking at it in that way can really help. And I think also um, we need to, in some ways, make it even more complicated because going back to my earlier point, we really can't look at decarbonisation transport in isolation from what we're doing on um, the built environment and what we're doing on energy. But again, there's some really exciting and clever initiatives around that. So the one I always quote is Islington Council using waste heat from the underground to heat local housing estates. I mean, it's simple, it's clever, it's a win, 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 win. Um, or if you look in uh, Rotterdam, where uh, they built an enormous water tank under the new station, um, uh, which is designed to hold water from uh, more intense precipitation, but that's also helped fund the new station. Or look at what Leeds have done, where they've got uh, solar panels above the park and ride to uh, power the electric vehicles. They've also in the city centre where they are doing uh, uh, um, a heating grid. Um, uh, they've at the same time they've yeah. taken the opportunity to put in the bus priority and put in street trees and improve the street environment. So there's some really exciting and interesting challenges. And personally, I love to to dig these out and then. Uh, uh, bash other people over the head with them to try and you know move things forward, um, and I think that can, as we, going back to 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 Caroline's point about getting your head down and 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 being pragmatic about it. Yeah. So I think they're, they're making the connections uh, across sectors. It's also a very interesting thing to do professionally too. That's great. Thanks both of you. And so yeah, I'm certainly taking away. Be pragmatic. I'm reminded of Professor Michael Mann from the IPCC who emphasises 
urgency and agency. And I think that's the other point, which has come through in our in our audience remarks. Um, I would phrase as use your time wisely. Not all of us have the luxury to pick which projects we try and champion and where we divert, focus our energies. Organisations have to have income and pay people salaries and mortgages. But to the extent you can out there, um, please try and pick the winners, pick the Pick the battles you really want to fight and win uh, and don't be sucked sucked into the distraction, if you like, of um, business as usual and, and retrograde steps. So thanks, everyone, for joining from my point of view. I'm going to hand back to, to Becca um, with the unenviable task of some closing remarks. Thanks, Becca. Thanks, Glenn. And thanks, Caroline and Jonathan, for a, a fascinating conversation. Um, how to summarise it? A couple of things that stood out to me. Um, sharing good practice, pats on the back, all well and good, but those conversations must lead to acceleration of action. So let's build on the competitive nature of our city regions and their mayors to spur them on to be the best, the greenest and the bravest. And I think one of our key tools in doing that is that seeing is believing side of things. I think study visits have fallen out of favour, particularly since COVID, uh, but they aren't just a jolly, they are powerful and inspiring and showing what can be done better than any written case study or probably UTN. Um, Caroline's um, Jakarta example I found really fascinating. It just shows what can be done when we really put our minds to it. Doubled public transport service, they've brought it together under an integrated smart card and in less than five years gone from the fourth to the 46th most congested city. So, wow, the battle really is fought and won in cities. Um, looking at those pragmatic approaches, carbon budgeting um, came up a lot, uh, something with real practical potential that's worked in local government in Nordic countries. So let's learn from that. We need to think about the carbon impact of everything we do and ensure that we're joining the dots with decisions in other policy areas like energy um, and the built environment. And if we get this right, we're also going a long way, as people have said, to, to solving our other uh, gritty problems. We'll be healthier, the air will be cleaner, our cities will be more vibrant and livable. But it's really important that we take people with us and that, that they're part of it. And that's a whole new set of skills that we need to build up as a sector. So let's use our time wisely, as Glenn so rightly said. So thanks again, everybody. Um, our urban transport next events are now taking a well-earned break um, but we'll be back in the new year with plenty more thought-provoking topics and speakers so in the meantime thanks again to our wonderful panel to everyone who took part live or watch later thank you and goodbye <laughs>